If you have a Bible with you this morning, if you'd remain standing and go ahead and grab your Bible and open it up to 1 John chapter 5. We'll read the epilogue again from verses 13 through 21 this morning. 1 John chapter 5. It's a gorgeous view from up here watching all God's people holding his word in their hands. 1 John chapter 5, beginning in verse 13. We read, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Here ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Let's pray together, church. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this letter of 1 John. Thank you for stirring our holy affections for your son, Jesus. We pray, O oh God, that your spirit would teach us this morning as we study your word together. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Please be seated, church. So one of the blessings as a pastor that we pastors get to do is we get to officiate weddings and funerals. And in God's providence, I've officiated more funerals than I have weddings. And for those of you that have ever attended a funeral... There's something that is often said about the person who has passed away. People will come up and they will speak and they often say, he lived a good life or, or he had a good life. And I often sit by and I think, what exactly does that mean? Well, what does it mean that he had a good life? Does it mean that, that he owned a home, that he had a white picket fence, that he had a dog, that he was married with children? What does it mean that he had a good life? Does it mean that he didn't experience any horrible tragedies in his lifetime? Does it mean that he enjoyed health and wealth during his time on earth? Does having a good life, is it defined by material possessions? Like he had an RV, he had a boat, he had a huge house, he had memberships to all the finest country clubs. Is that the good life? How would you define the good life? If in this lifetime you are able to check off 
every box on your bucket list, would that equate to the good life? Because we must not forget that we are body and soul. If anyone spent their entire life focused on the body and neglected their soul, then they did not live a life that was good. They lived a life that was tragic. Jesus said these words, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? When we began this study in 1 John on January 1st of this year, the title of that sermon was Knowing God. And that's been our pursuit for these last six months. Let me remind you of some quotes I shared in that first sermon in this series. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, Our supreme need, our only need, is to know God, the living God, the power of his might. We need nothing else End quote. J.I. Packer added, What were we made for? To know God. What aim should we have in life? To know God. What is the eternal life that Jesus gives? To know God. What is the best thing in life? You probably caught on. To know God. What in humans gives God most pleasure? Knowledge of himself. End quote. Of course, Jesus said these words. He said, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. See, what is the good life? Is it a life that is just full of uh, health and wealth? Is it a life that's full of worldly possessions and checking off boxes to exotic destinies or destinations? The real good life is that we would know the one true God. That's the title of this morning's sermon, The One True God. Looking at just the last verses this morning of this epistle of 1 John, 1 John chapter 5, we'll focus on verses 18 through 21 this morning. In these final four verses of John's epistle, he uses the word know four times. You'll see it if you look at your Bibles at the beginning of verse 18, in verse 19, and verse 20. They all begin with, we know. John is making it clear that truth is found in Jesus Christ alone. It is not found through some other form of higher knowledge that the false teachers were trying to proclaim and try to share in the church. It is because of the finished work of Christ, the believer can stand firm in the faith with complete assurance of their salvation. Amen, church? Amen. John concludes this letter with summary statements. That's what we'll look at this morning. These summary statements of what he's already argued throughout this letter. So as we look at these final four verses this morning, we'll divide it up. First thing we'll see is a proper understanding of sin in verse 18. In verse 19, we'll see a proper understanding of the world. And then lastly, in verses 20 and 21, we'll see a proper understanding of the Son of God. So a proper understanding of sin, of the world, and of the Son of God. If you look, pay, uh, place your attention to your Bibles in your laps on 1 John chapter 5, verse 18. Starting with this first point of proper understanding of sin, 
In verse 18, John writes, we know that everyone who has been born of God, and he continues on, but I want to pause there. He speaks of being born. This word born, he uses 10 times in this letter of 1 John. It speaks of the new birth. Jesus refers to it as being born again in John chapter 3. It's the work of the Holy Spirit in regeneration. It's what we refer to as conversion. John then says that those who have been born of God, there's three things he lists in verse 18. He says they do not keep on sinning. He says they're protected by Jesus. And thirdly, he says they're not harmed by Satan. So let's look at the first one of those. Those who are born of God do not keep on sinning. If you've been with us through this study of 1 John, this is not the first time you've heard this. You have heard it over and over again as that is evidence that the Spirit is within you. That there is not habitual sin, that you are not known by sin. John makes it very clear that sin and the child of God are incompatible. And though they may occasionally meet, they cannot live together in harmony. John makes it clear in his letter that a sinful life is totally incompatible with the life that is received from God. If you would flip back a couple of pages to 1 John chapter 3, I feel like we flip here every single week as John continues to make this argument. 1 John chapter 3, verse 6, John writes, No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Skip down to verse 9 of chapter 3. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Now what we have heard and what we, John has testified to is that a Christian may stumble into sin. As a matter of fact, if you backtrack just a couple verses from where we are this morning, he's told us that when we see a brother or sister fall into sin, that we're going to pray for them. So we know that we could stumble into sin, but his point is that the believer will not stay there. They will not be in bondage to that sin. Go all the way back to chapter 1, how he opened up this epistle in chapter 1. Look with me at verses 8 through 10. John writes, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. John is writing to believers. He's saying there is still sin, but we do not remain in sin. John clearly expresses Christians will sin. As I alluded to earlier in chapter 5, verse 16, he says, as we see them fall into sin, we will pray for one another. And so what's the difference between the believer and the unbeliever? For the believer, we are no longer in bondage to sin. We're no longer bound to it, anchored to it, driven by it. Why? Because we have been changed from the inside 
out. James Montgomery Boyce succinctly says this. He says, the new birth will result in new behavior. And you know that, right, church? You're not who you used to be before Christ. The believer has been given a new heart with new desires. A desire now to please God. And in addition to this inward change, since believers are born of God, we know that they are protected by Jesus. This is what John argues in verse 18 of chapter 5. Turn back to chapter 5, verse 18. He says, those who are born of God are protected by Jesus. Verse 18, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him. Now, simply reading just through 1 John and you come across this point, we have to ask the question, like, who is the one born of God who protects everyone born of God? Like, look at the verse. You say, well, who, who's it speaking of? Is the one born of God, is it the believer himself? Or is it Jesus? Now, you know my answer because I told you that in the subheading there, that we're protected by Jesus. But how did I get there? Because Scripture does not teach anywhere that the believer keeps himself secure. It is Christ that holds us fast. John 17, 12, Jesus praying says, While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and none of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Who's protecting us? Jesus. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 5, we read, Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We're being protected. We've talked about it before. If it was up to us, many of us would have thrown in the towel by now. This is too hard. This is not what I thought it was going to be. But he who began the good work is faithful to complete it. In Jude, verse 24, we read, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Speaking of Christ, it is him who does this work. Christ. It's by his work on earth that he obtained our salvation. But it's by his work now that he maintains our salvation. You understand? He continues to intercede for us. He protects us. Christ, the eternally begotten Son of God, protects us from sin. A verse we've referred to in the past, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. I'll continue referring you there until you have it memorized. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Amen, hallelujah. He will not let us be tempted beyond our ability. And not only that, but he will provide the way of escape that we might be able to endure the temptation. When temptation comes, we often say, God, just take me out of this place and move me over here. But he's going to help us to endure, to say no, to resist. James would say, resist the devil and he will flee from you. 
So thus far in 1 John 5, 18, we've seen that those born of God do not keep on sinning. They're protected by Jesus. And thirdly, he says in verse 18 that those born of God cannot be harmed by Satan. Look again at verse 18, 1 John chapter 5. I'll read it again. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. Notice that John describes Satan as the evil one. As he's referred to him throughout this letter four times. In chapter 2, twice he referred to Satan as the evil one. In chapter 3, he refers to him as the evil one. And here in chapter 5, again, he refers to him as the evil one. This evil one seeks to lay hands on believers. But he is unable to touch them because of God's protecting power. The word touch here, this word that John uses, it means to harm or to injure a person. Look, Satan desires to lead us into sin. He desires to control us, to have a permanent control over us. But we who are in Christ are no longer under his control. Though he desires to have it, he no longer has it. Because we are now children of God. God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and he's transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. To which we should all say, praise God, hallelujah, that we're no longer under the power of Satan. Though we war against invisible enemies, Jesus is our full armor of God. Some of you remember our study through Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 12 and 13 reads, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. What is he talking about? Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the believer's armor. And though we battle against these invisible enemies of darkness, Satan's power has been disarmed. In this morning's public reading out of Colossians, you heard about it in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. We read this morning, he disarmed the rulers. This is what Jesus did. On the cross, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. What does that mean? It means Satan can't touch us. It means he cannot force us into sin. Now listen, he, he may attack, he, he may entice, he may lure, but he cannot grab us because Jesus keeps us safe. We have our security, church, not in ourselves. Our security is in Jesus. John Stott comments about this. He says, quote, The devil does not touch the Christian because the son keeps him. And so because the son keeps him, the Christian does not persist in sin. John has argued over and over again that we are to abide in the Spirit child of God has supernatural power to overcome temptation and to obey the will of God. 
Bible says we've been given all things that pertain to life and godliness. We've been freed from the bondage of sin. And now we reign victorious in Christ. And so John argues here, look, once again, understand that everyone who has been born of God does not live in habitual sin. So a good time for us to stop and to consider, to consider our own lives. Is there the same sin in our own lives that we continually commit? Shall I list some? How about anger? How about unforgiveness? How about lust? How about laziness? We could probably take up our whole time this morning going one after another after another. But until we allow the Spirit to apply the Word of God to our lives, we are not being doers of the Word. We're being hearers only. So we must consider these things. And to realize that if you are a professing believer, if you are in Christ this morning, you are no longer in bondage to that sin. Which means you no longer have to give in to that sin. It no longer has to rule and reign in your life. So what do you do? You repent and you put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. Those of you men that have been coming to the Thursday night men's study, we're going through a book called The Man Christ Jesus, Theological Reflections of His Humanity, which by the way, if you are not coming and if you're like, well, because I'm not a man, I encourage you to pick up the book, The Man Christ Jesus, Theological Reflections on the Humanity of Christ. This last week, we were discussing the fact that in his humanity, Jesus was dependent upon the Spirit of God as he walked the earth. Say, so, wait, wait, what? Yes, he was fully God, but he was fully human. And in his humanity, he depended on the Spirit of God as he walked in obedience to the Father. And guess what? That same Spirit of God now dwells in us who believe. Not a different portion was upon Jesus, but the same exact spirit. What does that mean for us as we consider that truth? It means just as Jesus was fully dependent upon that spirit, the spirit of God, guess what we should be as well? Completely dependent upon the spirit. You know, Hebrews 4.15, a, a verse that we're very familiar with, Bringing that in mind and holding that in your mind's eye, Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus knew what it was like to be dependent upon the Spirit as he walked this earth in his humanity. He knows that we come to him and ask for help. He knows what it's like. And he knows that as we abide in the Spirit, we will not walk in sin. It's a whole new perspective as we talk about having the Spirit of God, the same Spirit that was upon Christ Jesus. That if we abide in him, we'll not live in habitual sin. It would be impossible to live in sin if we're living in the Spirit. And so this is the proper understanding of sin. That for the believer, we have been freed from the bondage of sin. 
And for the believer, we have been empowered to supernaturally be victorious over sin. That as we abide in the spirit of God, we do not yield to sin. John goes on and argues in recaps in 1 John chapter 5, a proper understanding of the world in verse 19. If you look with me at verse 19 of chapter 5. He says, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Okay, now brace yourselves. Some of you will say, what? There are children of God and there are children of the devil. And there's no other category. Nobody is neutral. You're, in, you're either a child of God or a child of the devil. Now, speaking to you, fellow believer, before you were drawn to Christ through the work of his spirit, did you think that you were a child of the devil? Many of you didn't. You thought, I have freedom. I can do what I want. But God says something entirely different. You do not have freedom. You were a pawn. You were being used by the enemy of your soul. Nobody is neutral. We're in one or the other. We're either from God and we do his will, or from the devil and we do his will. But those who are from God, John has argued throughout this letter that they are those who testify to the truth about Christ, about him coming in the flesh, about him living a perfect life, about him laying down his life on the cross, and about him rising from the grave. Those who are children of God, they are those who now desire to obey him. They desire to live for his glory. And they demonstrate their love for Christ by their love one for another. That description, I sure hope, describes you this morning. That you've seen that transformation in your life. That you were darkness, but now you're light. That you're new in Christ. But perhaps as I went through that description, you went, maybe that does not describe me. If it does not describe you that you have new life in Christ and now desire to please him and desire to obey him and desire to love his people, then John's conclusion here is that you're not born of God, you're of the devil. And under his power, just like the rest of us were before repenting and trusting in Christ. One of our favorite chapters in the Bible, Ephesians chapter 2. Such a glorious truth. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind." Those whose father is the devil, they do his will. They do his bidding. He is the prince of the power of the air, and the world lies under his power. Meaning all of human society is under the power of evil and is at war against God and God's people. Martin Luther said this, 
He said, quote, the world is a realm of wrongdoing and the devil is Lord over it, end quote. Doesn't it feel like there's evil all around? Do you realize that's nothing new? You know, for us as, as American Christians and being an American society, we say, well, we look at our society and how things are changing. However, evil all around is nothing new. Go back to Genesis chapter 3. It begins there. At the fall. The evil one, the devil, he holds the entire world in his power. He is a deceiver, the Bible says. The Bible says he is the liar. He is the father of lies. He has come to destroy. And listen, if it wasn't for Christ, we would all be deceived and led off to destruction. Every single one of us. And praise God. Praise God that he defends us. He defends his people. He defends us from the evil one. Because without his defense, the evil one would destroy us. And so to be born of God means that we are safe. Safe from the power of the evil one. But the reverse is true as well. Not to be born of God is to be wholly under the power of the evil one. Remember, there's one or the other, born of God or born of the devil. And so if you have not repented and placed your trust in Christ, you are dead in your sins. You are without hope and you are currently being used as a pawn by the enemy of your soul. And if the Spirit of God would awaken you to this truth, then the answer is to turn to Christ. To turn from sin and to trust in Christ. To trust in him as Lord and Savior. To yield your life to this good and glorious God. The one true God. Looking around, I know many of you have done that. That God in his grace has granted you the gift of salvation. Has awakened your soul to the truth of who Jesus Christ is. And God in his word says, look, here's a proper understanding of sin. Here's a proper understanding of the world. world. And now we look at this last point that John makes is a proper understanding of the Son of God. Back in 1 John, we're concluding this letter. 1 John chapter 5, verses 20 and 21, we read. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true in his son Jesus Christ he is the true God and eternal life and then John goes on and says little children keep yourselves from idols John concludes his letter by stating again and saying look the son of God has come church do you remember what the mission of the son of God was to seek and to save that which is lost. To which we who were lost but are now found say, Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord Jesus. But it is this Jesus, the second person of the Trinity for all eternity, who would take on flesh and come and dwell among us to seek and save that which is lost. John writes here in these concluding verses, that it is this one tri triune God who in the person of his son 
has given us understanding. He is also the one who is true, John says. And he also says that we now are in him. We're going to unpack these this morning. The first thing he says is that he has given us understanding. This word understanding in the Greek means the power or the capacity of knowing. In his coming, Jesus gave us understanding so that we might recognize the reality of who he is. Church, this is called the grace of God. That we would know the Lord Jesus. We did not in our own wisdom somehow discern this truth. We did not in our own zealousness try to pursue it. It is God who has revealed these things to us. Remember, before Christ, we were under the power of the evil one. But it's through the work of Christ that our eyes have been opened that we might know him. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, Paul writes, For God who said, let, sh let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This understanding, this knowledge comes through Christ. And it's a gift that has been given to us. John is actively writing this way because the false teachers of the day were teaching there was a higher knowledge. There was a deeper knowledge that you must have and possess. And he says, no, everything that you need to know is in Christ. It is him who you must know and him alone. It is not Jesus plus some other knowledge. It is knowledge of the Holy One, Jesus Christ, and him alone. True believers are given this understanding so that, as John writes, they might know him who is true. And so you see that in verse 20, he says that we might know him who is true. John uses this word true three times in rapid succession. Moreover, the knowledge of God that Christ gives us is knowledge that is beyond just what the world says is knowledge. This is a knowledge that is from God. And it's a knowledge about God. It's of who he is. It is true knowledge. John uses the word true, like I said, three times. It refers to something that is authentic as, as opposed to that which is false. The ultimate reality as opposed to that which is merely its shadow. John was intentionally refuting the lies that the false teachers were proclaiming about Christ. And so he says, we know who is true. But get this part. He says, and we are in him who is true. At the end of verse 20, he says, in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. What does that mean? It means we have intimate fellowship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. It is Jesus who is the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. We are in the Father and we are in the Son. Listen to how Jesus prayed the high priestly prayer. I referred to it earlier. We'll move on to some other verses in it. In John 17, verses 20 and 21, this is Jesus' prayer. He prays to the Father. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, 
so that the world may believe that you have sent me. What does it mean to be in Christ? It means to have union with him, to be in him, to enjoy communion with God. Our identity now as believers is in Christ. There is great freedom that we have a new identity in Christ. Think of all the commands that we are given to, to walk in humility. You know, when someone attacks you, if you say, well, I'm in Christ, so who are they attacking? They're attacking Christ. It doesn't sting the flesh as much. But if I'm walking in Robert and want to protect Robert and someone attacks me, guess what? Much harder to respond to humility. But understanding my identity is now in Christ, understanding your identity is Christ, there is freedom now to walk in Christ. Paul the Apostle would put it this way in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Understanding this identity, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul understood what it meant to be in Christ. Over and over again, he referred to being in him, in Christ, to have his identity in his Lord. And what's the big deal? Well, it is this Lord, it is this Jesus, who is the true God and eternal life that John comes to a conclusion of this letter and writes about. In verse 20, he says, he is the true God and eternal life. And God's people are now in him, have communion with him, have fellowship with him, are identified with him. John is intentional here, wrapping this up, pointing to Christ, saying he is the one true God because he is directly refuting the false teachers that denied that Jesus was the Christ, that Jesus was the Son of God. John uses his final words to say, no, truly, this is the Christ. It is this Jesus whom you must know. Look, the false teachers were about lies, lies, lies. John concludes his letter and says, Jesus, there is true, true, true. He is true. There's affirmation here. He is the one true God. He alone is eternal life. You know, John makes a full circle from how he began this letter back in the opening chapter. In just the second verse, he refers to Jesus as being the eternal life. And now in the concluding lines, he writes once again, he is eternal life. He's saying, don't take your eyes off of Jesus. Keep your eyes fixed upon him. He bookends this letter by saying, he's eternal life. He's eternal life. There is no other way. Don't depart from Christ. Keep your eyes on him. That those who have Christ have eternal life. If you look back to what John said earlier in chapter 5 in verse 12, he said it clearly. 1 John 5, 12, he said, Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Beloved, because you have Christ, you have everything. You have everything. Nothing else compares. He is the way and the truth and the life. It is him alone. There is no other way to the Father. There is salvation and no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. It is the one true God, Jesus 
Christ. He is the way. He alone is Lord and he alone is Savior. He alone is the propitiation of our sins. Jesus Christ. This is not a swear word. It's the most beautiful thing that we could have come off our lips. The one who gave himself for us, who willingly laid down his life, Jesus He is the one true God and eternal life. John, at the conclusion of his letter, spotlights are blaring. They're all on Jesus. And he says, keep your eyes on him. All eyes are on Jesus. And so there's not a normal ending to this letter of greet these people and greet those people. He's saying all eyes are on Jesus. And because all eyes are on Jesus, look at his final words. Verse 21, he says, little children, keep yourself from idols. Boop. That's it. Not greet anybody, not say hello. He said, all eyes are on Jesus. He is the truth. And because he is the truth, keep your eyes on him. Because when your eyes are not on him, on who is the true one, what you have is you have an idol. He's saying you must have faith in this Jesus about the one whom the apostles witnessed, the ones whom they preached about. He says, if you do not have this Jesus, then you have an idol. You must have faith in the Jesus of the Bible, not a Jesus of anyone's imagination. In his context there 2,000 years ago, he's speaking of the false teachers. But do you think that's gone away in 2,000 years? Not at all. Those false teachers then, they were these apostate antichrists. They're they're promoting an idolatrous image of Jesus. They denied that he had come in the flesh. They denied that he had died for sin. And they denied the teachings of Jesus about love and obedience. Well, guess what? Those who desire to live in sin, man, they'll gobble up that. Wait, I don't have to be obedient? Uh, I don't have to live out love? They had an idol. They didn't have the true Jesus. You say, well, that was 2,000 years ago, but it happens all over the place, all around the globe today. There are many megachurches that make their megachurches out of peddling a gospel that is not a biblical gospel and preach a Jesus who is not a biblical Jesus. They will focus on love and grace, but you'll never hear anything of sin or hell. You'll never hear of judgment. You'll never hear of all the attributes of God. And if you do not have a God who has all of his attributes, what you have is an idol. It is not the one true God. Jesus desires our love and our obedience. If you throw either one of those out, you have an idol. He says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. He says, receive Jesus, the one true God as revealed in the Holy Scripture, the God-man, fully man, fully God, the one who said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. 
The one who would say, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Believe in this, Jesus, John says. Stay believing in this. Do not chase after any counterfeit. Don't even entertain any such thoughts. Because when you are in Christ, you are his forevermore. That is the whole argument of this entire letter, is that a believer in Jesus Christ, you have assurance of your salvation in him. Before I close in prayer this morning, let's bow our heads and take a minute to quietly reflect on how the Spirit is teaching us through his word this morning. Father, thank you for sending your son, Jesus. Thank you that we can hold on to what is absolutely true in a day and age where truth is viewed as relative. Thank you for eternal life that we have through your son. Help us, oh God. Help us keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, to walk in him, to resist sin, and to reflect Christ's glory. Thank you for the blessed assurance that we have of our salvation because of the finished work of your son. In his glorious name that we pray. Amen.